Welcome to The Honest Pour with John Lennart, where we go beyond the bottle to connect you with the people and places that make each wine so unique. Manuel Lozada is a fourth-generation winemaker born in Portugal. He now makes wines in Spain and Argentina. His Spanish label, Aranzano, is part of the Grandes Pagos de España. This group of wineries has the reputation of being a bit rebellious, making the best wines possible, often regardless of DO regulations. Lozada's wines, both from Argentina and Spain, are high-quality, terroir-driven wines, a philosophy he learned from his grandfather at the age of five. We talked about how he maintains this philosophy on two continents, and of course, we tasted some delicious wines. This episode of The Honest Pour is sponsored in part by Fooditor.com, bringing you the stories of Chicago's chefs, restaurants, and people who make food all over town. Fooditor.com. Hi, welcome to The Honest Pour. I'm John Lennart. Joining me today is Manuel Lozado of Aranzano from Spain. Yes. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. So tell me about Aranzano. Where is it? What makes it special? If you don't mind, I'll take you back in time a little bit. When I went to Aranzano in 2015 for the first time, I, when I heard it was located right in the middle, uh, the sort of the border between uh, Navarra and La Rioja, I was surprised. So I took up my car, I live in Madrid, I drove up north for around uh, 300 miles, mm-hmm. and suddenly I get to this small road and I discover this beautiful jewel. The winery is located roughly 40, so that would be 30 miles, uh, west of Pamplona and 30 miles east of Logroño, right in the middle. And this is a beautiful uh, region, it's a beautiful property that has the Dio Pago appellation, this beautiful property that has a unique character and on top of that has a beautiful winery. You said Dio Pago appellation, some of my listeners might not know what that is. What is a Dio Pago appellation? Well, there's a sort of a pyramid in Spain that goes from Vino de Mesa, which is the entry level, which is, it doesn't matter where the grape comes from. Yeah, that's a good comparison. And, uh, And then afterwards, as it gets more and more exclusive and restricted the origin of the grapes, you go to, um, you know, it's called the geographical indication of, uh, of uh, where the grapes come from. Then afterwards you go to DOC, so uh, Controlled Appellation of Origin. Then you go to DOCA, which is Classified Appellation of Origin, where you only have two regions, which is La Rioja and Priorato, right. where the difference between DO and DOCA is basically that all the bottles, all the wine that's produced in the DOCA has to leave inside a bottle, Mm -hmm. okay? And then afterwards, on the top of the pyramid of exclusivity, it's the Opago. Has exactly the same restrictions and regulations as a DOCA, but the difference is that the property, the vineyard, is a single appellation of origin. So, all of your wines are made with estate fruit. Then. Exactly, 100% estate fruit. And uh, you know, to get, it's not easy to get a Diopago, I can promise you that because it's, first of all, you have to prove that you have a unique history behind. So you've been making wine for quite a long time. In our case, you know, there's some documents that prove that the first vineyards that were planted in the property go back to the 11th century, 1055 to be more precise. Then afterwards, you have to describe in a sort of very in-depth, extensive study the singular characteristics of the soil and climate that are different from the rest. And once you've proven that, you start a 10 years process where you make the wine for 10 years, you show that wine has unique characteristics. And afterwards, the two 
uh, organisms that control the regulations, which is the European Community and the INTA, the National Institute of Agriculture Technology in Spain, you are allowed to start using Diopago. I see. So it seems very much like maybe um, comparing to Burgundy, like a Premier Cru or a Grand Cru. It's almost, uh, compared to Burgundy, it's almost like a monopole because the... A monopole, sure. Yeah, 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 the exactly. grapes come from a single property. Yeah, so. that's a perfect uh, way to describe it. That's great. Now, you're also at Aranzano, you're part of the Grandes Pagos de España. Mm -hmm. Tell me what that is. So Grandes Pagos de España is... Um, I, I, I like to, to say that it was an audacious organization that start in a country like in Spain where the appellations of origin you know would state would almost uh, give the you know a sort of a, not only of origin a sense of the origin but also a sense of the quality what that the wines were produced there but that in my opinion we're missing something that as a winemaker I've been you know loving since I was a kid I started tasting wine at the age of five anyway so which was for me the wine has to be an expression of a single terroir so you know um, at, by using the classifications and on top of that, inside those classifications, the fact of uh, having Reserva, uh, Gran Reserva, and of course before that, Crianza and, and Vino Joven would not give a sense of exactly those small properties, those small unique terroirs that you have. So Grandes Pagos de España was an audacious private association that gathered those producers that were focused on wines coming out of a single terroir. And for me, there was, you know, initially it was audacious because of, of, of the panorama that you have. And then afterwards, we start to put together the association has grown. The association is um, focused on the developing of the image of this single terroir wines. How long have you been part of Grandes Paros de España? Uh, I believe that we've been part over 10 years ago. 10 years. Like so it started in the 60s with uh, Carlos Falco from Marquise de Grenon. Yes. And it's grown to almost 30, I think 29 wineries today. Mm -hmm. And it's wineries that are all over Spain that are growing grapes, are making wines that are very terroir specific, but maybe don't follow DOCA regulation, right? Well, you know what? Some of the wines are Dio Pago as well. Sure. Some of the wines, including Carlos Falco is a fantastic example, yeah. and of course, Arinzano is a fantastic example as well, because we are Dio Pago, but on top of that, we are part of Grandes Pagos de España. So we have we follow the rules on one hand from an estate standpoint, from a, a government standpoint, but on the other hand, we also think that with the association, this private association, that actually on top of that is the only private association in, 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 uh, in Spain that the, you have to submit you cannot participate just because you say, oh, I make wines. No, no, you have to submit the wines, sure. the, then to submit what you do, the practice that you have in the vineyards, you know, practice that have to, on top of that, as part of our concern, have to have sustainable practices. Then afterwards, the way that you make the wine, how the wine is, is, is a reference, is an expression of where it comes from. All this we has to go through before you're being accepted in the uh, in Grandes Pagos de España. So, you know, that's, in my opinion, it also makes it more exclusive and more representative of what wines from, uh, from single terroir are in Spain. So how would you describe the single terroir of Aranzano? Well, first of all, the thing that uh, shocked me the most when I started to look at was that I was expecting that the conditions would be quite similar. Where, on the other hand, when I got to visit the property and to walk around the property, for me, the best way to understand a property or a vineyard is to walk around the vineyard, let's put it this way. You start to see that even though you're located probably in the less than 
three miles of diameter, four miles of diameter, you have such huge differences. So you have basically from north to south, you have the Ego River that crosses the property. Okay. On the east side, on the east side, you have a sort of a topography, which is a, a sort of a mountain range that has valleys and, and different elevation and sort of a completely different slopes and even the soil is quite different. We have this beautiful park which is called La Muga where we have an incredible Merlot. If you continue a little bit further south you have this beautiful park that actually climbs up the mountain so you know that the Merlot is sort of a milder temperature closer to the river. As we go up a little bit on, the, on this sort of slope you go to Tempranillo and the higher you go the more purest and, and, and complete expression of Tempranillo you have. Then afterwards you suddenly cross just a, a sort of a hill and on the other side is the Chardonnay Valley. For me it's a spectacular Chardonnay Valley and all of this because of the soil origin so you have chalk underneath and then afterwards you have a very, uh, the, the profile is, then, is less than two feet depth okay. because it's a, it's a very thin sandy sort of lime uh, top where the, the vineyards do not have enough nutrients, and so the they vines struggle. really have to struggle. Yeah, oh, they, they have to. The vines have to struggle to to feed those, you know, beautiful small clusters. I'm sorry, I'm using my hands like the, the half of the palm of my hand of the, of the of the clusters of Chardonnay, which is unbelievable. So that's on one side, and that's so the, very. The I, I'm kind of imagining Chablis kind of like yes. flavors. Yes, exactly. So, and then afterwards, you cross the river, you go to the to the west side, and there you have a sort of a plateau with a much more consistent character. So depending on when the vineyards are located, you can have a Burgundian expression of Chardonnay. You can have a Rioja Alavesa expression of Tempranillo. You can have a Bordeaux expression of Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon. And these are only the four grape varieties that we are allowed to plant. So you just plant the four varieties? Yes, Mer Mer Merlot, uh, Tempranillo, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Chardonnay. Yes, that's it. it. You're not that far from Saint Sebastian, are you? A one hour driving north. So <laughs> if you like to eat, this is nice. This is one of my favorite Eat places in the whole world, the San Sebastian. Yes. So, and, and so, because of being so close, there's sort of a mountain range right at the south of San Sebastian. And you can even see at the top of the property, you look north, imagine, and you have this mountain range. You see the clouds coming out of the North Atlantic, and suddenly they are blocked on the north side. And there's a wind that comes through a sort of a V cut mm -hmm. in the middle of the two of the three mountain range. And there's the Thierto wind that's very famous on other regions, like, um, you know... Like uh, Mostral. Exactly. So as it is the, this wind comes, it goes through the property, and it's a very dry and cold wind. This affects majorly on this part of the property, what I was saying, where the mountains... So that's range. how you can grow that Chardonnay cool climate next to the warmer climate, Tempranillo, and... Spectacular. You can go there on... A, August day where you would expect a temperature that would be 90 to 95 and suddenly you're there and you can feel you know like goosebumps is that right sure where, where, goosebumps, yeah. because because of the cold wind that comes through the through the valley it's like man it's chilly around here no it's not it's just uh, <laughs> just right then let's talk about how you got into wine obviously your grandfather was involved in wine somehow tell me tell me about your history and how you got into the wine business well I started very early you know, as a, as a Portuguese, I'm Portuguese originally, um, and I've always defended this. Wine is part of our cult culture, so in my opinion, it has to be part of our education. So, forbidding things is not educate; it's just forbidding. In our case, was what the wine is like, how's wine part of our all our life, 
and how uh, you know the fact of incorporating a little bit of wine you know in my time was probably a tiny drop inside a glass of water was part of our culture to understand the taste and finally at the end of the day let's put it this way it's the most healthy drink of course moderately drinking and responsibly drinking to enjoy with a meal so anyway that's what I started learning of course I've also learned I had my grandfather that also told me you know when I started tasting at the age of five that's when I tasted I'm the fourth generation of a family dedicated to the wine business in Portugal, wow. so that's why I get there. And then afterwards, with my grandfather was grandfather was telling me was these are the good things about wine, but you have to be also aware that you know if you drink too much, this is what may happen. So sure. it was part of my education. I've always since the age of five, there was something that happened in, inside, you know, that I was like compelled. Since then, I knew that I wanted to be a wine. Where in Portugal were you? I'm from the Bairada region, so I grew up in the Bairada region, which is in the center of Portugal, close to Coimbra, and I grew up in the Douro Valley where my family So you made wine in the Douro? Yes, I did. And I was lucky enough to make wine there as well. That's terrific. Was Aranzano your first winemaking experience outside of Portugal? Not at all, not at all. I had a very strange life for a winemaker. And I'll explain that. So after finishing my agriculture engineer degree and my master's degree on winemaking, I went back to Portugal to prepare myself to start working in my family company. But then suddenly, you know, when you, when you are a young kid, I've always felt that wine, you know, that was something that I learned from my grandfather as well. It's about diversity. So, you know, I didn't want to only stick to the, uh, to the, to the family business or to the sort of, a, you know, the type of wines that we were making. So I decided to explore. And uh, at some point in 97, I joined LVMH, I joined Moet Hennessy, uh, as a winemaker of uh, Rosé Sport. So I started making port for two years. Two years later, I was invited, you know, due to strategic decisions, uh, it was decided that the Rosé Sport was to, uh, to be sold. So I was invited to go to Argentina and to be the chief winemaker of sparkling wine in Argentina, of Chandon Argentina, which was the first subsidiary of Moet de Chandon and still today the biggest subsidiary of Moet de Chandon in the world. So I was, when I was asked that, I said, are you sure? You know, make port wine goes north, Great. make sparkling wine goes south, so it's totally opposite directions. Why, are you sure? And they said, yes, we think you are a talented winemaker. And I said, well, if you're audacious enough to ask me that, to go to Argentina, I'll be audacious enough to accept the offer. And so I started learning about sparkling wine. Everything went very well. And three or four years later, I was in charge of all the winemaking operation in Argentina. And this was until 2009, roughly in 2008. I started to you know, have some conversations of going back to Spain and um, you know, fully established in 2009 until, until 2015. I was in charge of Numantia in Toro region. I was in charge oh, of Numantia, Numantia until in 2015, I decided to explore new path, and uh, you know, I joined uh, this project. So back project. to Grandes Pagos. Yes, back to Grandes Pagos. Well, uh, uh, yeah, it was my decision to be in Grandes Pagos with Numantia. So. Oh, was it? Yes, yes. That's terrific. Numantia is a wine that is single, it's a single Pago right. wine. So when it's a, it brings me to an interesting point when you. Uh, think when, when people and consumers think about Spanish wine, often they're thinking inexpensive, good value, but there's also the other side. There is the Numantia Termantia side, where it's higher end, uh, you know, maybe maybe reaching a bit for uh, scores from a certain critic. Um, 
how do you manage that in, in the wines that you're making at uh, Aranzano? So there, there are two things. I think that Spain has recently gone through a sort of a, an evolution from an overall portfolio, you know, from an overall portfolio. I mean, from an overall style of the wines. I think that there's been a very strong evolution within the last 20 years, even though there's still some time, some, some things to do to work on, on this single terroir kind of wines. Um, you know, initially, yes, the overall Spanish wine was, you know, on the, on the lower price. I believe that there's been a very good evolution towards from low price to fantastic value for money. That's something that you almost assured in, I'd say, 70, 80% of the wines that you have from Spain, they're, very, they're fantastic values for money, which is, which is a good way. But on top of that, you had some brands that initially, historical brands in Spain, I'm talking about still wines, okay? If you want to, we can talk a little bit later about cherry, cava, and sherry, but talking about the about still wines, you basically had one brand that was recognized overall, which was Vega Sicilia. And then afterwards, suddenly within the last 20, uh, less 15, 20 years, you started to have brands that were making outstanding wines, and that started to be recognized. Numantia Termanth is a fantastic example. But you also have, I don't know, from uh, uh, Pingus, you also have uh, the wines from, uh, from uh, El Puntido, La Nieta, you also have. So there are several wines that started to have this magnificent recognition within regions as well, wines like Muga, for example, Muga, you know, yeah. and, and, and even with the traditional style, which I, I, I think that, you know, that part of that diversity, the wines that have kept that traditional style also, you know, they're there's, there's also opportunity for this wine. I'm not just saying that you have to be, have a modern style. You have to have a focus where there's opportunity, and there are fantastic wines as well, like I don't know, Cune or you know even even others. So within this uh, this amazing range that you have, Spain has started to show as well some fantastic, fantastic wines. And so today, probably you have the vision of the uh, of the wines that um, that are fantastic value for money, but you also have within all the, the overall portfolio of wines or the overall panorama of wines that you have all over the world, you also have outstanding wines that are placed to close by the most famous French Chateau, Italian wines, etc. So, yes, there's been a fantastic, a very challenging evolution. How, where do I place Arenzano? I would say that uh, we're still discovering Arenzano. I think that Arenzano is going to be, has a, an outstanding terroir, has an outstanding terroir that allows you to, you know, wake up every morning dreaming of making the best wine in the world. And uh, because, you know, we, that's, I think that we have to be, to, to have that kind of a big dreams, let's put it this way. But then afterwards, the way that's going to express, it's going to be a balance of that expression of the terroir. And a very subtle, yet, uh, you know, impression from my side that have to help enhancing the character of the terroir. Tell me about different levels of wine that are made at Aranzano. So we have three, three levels. We have uh, Hacienda de Aranzano, or Aranzano, Hacienda de Aranzano, which is our entry level. So the white wine is the Chardonnay. The Rosé, even coming from a region close to Navarra, is actually made out of Tempranillo, 100%. And the last one, last but not least, is the, um, the Hacienda de Aranzano Red, which is Hacienda de Aranzano Red. It's, um, Around 80% Tempranillo, 10% Cabernet Sauvignon, and 10% Merlot. Okay, and then what's the next level? The next level is La Cazona. So La Cazona is, um, is made out of 75% uh, of Tempranillo and 25% of Merlot. I think it's, uh, for me, it's a spectacular blend that has not been that much explored all over. But for me, you know, the texture, the freshness, the, the sort of the length of the Tempranillo. 
together with the meatiness of the uh, of the uh, of the Merlot is spectacular. And on top of that, from an aromatic standpoint, I believe that it gives such a beautiful complexity the Merlot to the Tempranillo that is is fantastic. And then finally, finally on the top, we make a very so a very small, a, a very limited edition of uh, of Gran Vino. We have Gran Vino Red, which is 100% Tempranillo, and Gran Vino Blanco, which is 100% Chardonnay. Uh, for me, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of Chardonnay, but I, I, I don't know if that's the right word, but I would almost say a purist burgundy style of Chardonnay because I like that. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I like, you know, I like that beautiful freshness, that liveliness, that vibrancy of the, of the Chardonnay, that length of the Chardonnay, not that sort of a, you know, a profile that's dominated by some characters, either oaky, buttery, or uh, over overripe. And so I like to go to that citrusy and lively vibrant Chardonnay. And so this, the, the Gran Vino Blanco Chardonnay was a 2010, and it was basically abandoned at the winery. It had not been sold. So I'm tasting everything at the winery, you know, that's what we have to do. And I take it more than tasting. I was drinking with some food, and mm -hmm. you know, I like to do that. You know that Navarra is the vegetable garden of Spain. It has the most spectacular vegetables. It has the most spectacular black truffles. It has the most spectacular caviar. It's in, in Spain, it's in the north. You know, there's so many good things to eat there. So, you know, I was having some good food and wine and, uh, and I said, wow. I was like, my God, this Aranzano Gran Vino Blanco is spectacular. What, how many bottles do you sell of this? Um, none. It's actually here hidden at the wine. I'm like, oh, come on. And so we started selling it, and yes, he had a fantastic, a fantastic success. It was just made sitting there waiting for you to come along and put it on the market. Well, someone that was, uh, you know, that liked Chardonnay and decided to put it on the market. And then, uh, no, side by side with the uh, Gran Vino Red, which is 100% Tempranillo, goes pretty well. When you, when you think about your, your wines, particularly your Reds, you know, especially from Rioja, your neighbor, uh, you think about, like, the old style and the new style. Mm -hmm. Where do your Tempranillos fall? I, if, I, let me rephrase, if you don't mind me. Sure, I, I, li I like to compare, you know, when people talk about old style and new style, I usually try to talk about a balance between the expression of the terroir and the impression of the winemaker. Most of the time, new world style is techniques that winemakers use to enhance the expression of the terroir. On the other hand, it's the use, for example, of very long aging in, in oak that actually marks and, and sort of a hides a little bit of the character of the terroir. So if you ask me, I'm, I will go, if we can call it that way, because I, in my opinion, you know, if you go to France, for example, and discover the, and even if you go to Italy, and you discover somewhat was considered the old style, actually, this balance between the expression of the terroir and the impression of the winemaker was much closer to the expression of the terroir than the impression of the winemaker. Sure. So, so, you know, for me, that's why I try to, to separate a little bit on the two. And where do I want to go? I want to have the expression of the terroir. And everything that I do is to understand what the terroir gives me every year with the differences of every vintage, but help enhancing that character, help delivering complexity, help the, the, that expression to be as purest as and as purest on one hand, but as expressive on the other as it might be. When, when you look at a bottle, when, when an American consumer looks at a bottle of Spanish wine, they're used to seeing Crianza, 
reserve, uh, ground reserve. Uh, because you're a DO Pago, do, do you fall outside of the regulation for that, or is it a choice that you're making internally? Yes, we do. We've decided, so within, for example, an, an or, um, a DOC like, uh, DOC, sorry, like uh, La Rioja, you still have the Vino Joven Crianza Reserva and Gran Reserva. Now, one of my questions is, and this, I think that being a winemaker at some point, or, or having a, this beautiful creative exercise of making wine, is to ask a lot of questions. Now, when you taste the wine and you say, okay, why do I have to may have this wine for five years in oak? This, this is beautiful as it is. Why don't I put it in a new barrel for two years and see, or, or 14 months, or even during the aging process, you decide, okay, it's not, I had in my mind go up to 24 months or two years, and suddenly in the middle of the road, I said, no, no, it's perfect now. And you're about 15 months and, and uh, three days, for example. I'm, I'm exaggerating, okay? But anyway, so to be that restricted, I think that from a wine style standpoint, uh, you, you have to be able to take the right decision at the right moment, understanding what you have in the, in the barrel, for example. So we decide not to go that, to follow that path, because we believe that what we have to do is to try to make the best wine that we can and not being tied to some particular uh, aging procedures that in my opinion would change the profile of the, of the expression of the terroir. I, I love that. I think in I, I was in Spain and I toured with Grandes Pagos de España and I tra traveled to a lot of the different uh, wineries that are members of the group and there seems to be this sort of rebellious um, philosophy among all of the winemakers that uh, rules be damned I'm going to make the best wine I can regardless of what the rules say and if you're going to come and threaten to tear out my vines because they don't fit your regulation threaten to tear it out and I'm still going to make the best wine I can. Let's taste some wine. Sure. You brought a couple of wines here. Tell me about the first one. So the first one that, uh, that we're going to have is La Cazona, Arenzano La Cazona. Uh, to 2008 in particular, so it was a 75% 75% Tempranillo, 25% of Merlot. And this is a 2008. 14 months of, of oak aging. And it's been in bottle since then. And look at the beautiful aging. It's smooth, it's slow, it still has some beautiful, lively, vibrant notes in there's the still, nose. There's still fruit on the nose for sure, but there's a definite uh, maturity to it. Where, yes. where that earthiness is uh, blending in and the wood is blending in and everything's sort of marrying together now. To totally agree, but you, you know, the, for me, the first impression was like, are you sure this is a 2008? I was like, yeah. Because really it, fresh. It has the fresh, it has the, uh, the, 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 the red fruit like, uh, like uh, raspberry, it has strawberry character, it had uh, black currant, and then afterwards, totally agree with what we were saying, that earthiness, minerality that you have in the nose, and then on top of that, the toastiness of the, of the oak is like almost like the third element coming out uh, from an aromatic standpoint, which is which is lovely. We need to again, we are, what we're trying to do is an expression of the terroir. If the oak overpowers the rest of the expression, I think that we would be too far from expressing the terroir, or probably we'd be expressing the terroir where the barrels come from. Or the oak rather than the fruit. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Very common in Rioja is American wood or a blend of American and French oak. What's your wood program like? 100% French oak. And uh, today we probably have around 70% of, uh, of oak that comes from uh, Burgundy. And uh, around 30, I'm sorry, 70%, yes, 70% and 30% that comes from Bordeaux. So, very tight grain, 
It's what we try to do. It's that kind of barrel that does not allow much oxidation. We even like to be on that slightly reductive character. And on top of that, we very, very, um, you know, the amount of oak that you feel in the wine is extremely low. So because we want to have that fruitiness. Well, I just took my first taste of the 2008 La Casona and super vibrant, really bright, great acidity. I mean, this wine is screaming for food. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, a lot of time when you talk about acidity, um, for me, I refresh, I, I'm, I'm talking about freshness. You know, that vibrancy that you're talking mm -hmm. about, liveliness, freshness, that's what acidity has to bring yeah, into the wine. Yeah, for sure. You know, because otherwise you drink the wine and you're like, okay, um, do I drink it by itself? Right. Uh, or what do I do? Here, as you were saying, screaming from... But not, a, not in a way that, it's not austere or linear. I mean, there's still a great balance of fruit and a great texture and a great body. Um, it's definitely not flabby at all. That acidity is there. The tannins are settling nicely. They're, they're silky now as opposed to probably when this wine was young, this probably was a, a little bit nervous. Little, yeah, chewy on the front, huh? Um, lovely wine, lovely wine. And how much of this is made? This La Cazona today we're making around 2,000 cases. Okay, so not a lot. No, no, we still, at this stage, we still very much, we want to establish the, the pillars of what our enzymes are going to be in the future. So right now we're totally focused on making outstanding wines, so or the best that we can. And then if afterwards things go well, we'll grow step by step. That's our only concern. So we have another wine here, but it's not, not an Arizona wine. Tell me about this, tell me what it is and why you have it here today. So we're, we are also brought, if you, I hope you don't mind, okay? We're going no, no, to no. do a little bit of a traveling all over the world. Okay. And I've decided to bring um, Atala Ferrer. So I'm in charge of two wineries currently, 100% of, of two wineries. And, um, and um, you know, Atala Ferrer is part of the Tenute del Mondo as, as as we were talking a little bit earlier, which is the division, uh, the SPI group that uh, that uh, takes care of the of the of the wineries, and so I decided to bring a bottle from Argentina. I've just arrived from Argentina on Saturday, so I said I'm going to bring a, bring a bottle of Malbec, 100% Malbec. So you chase harvests. You go uh, summer in Spain and winter in Argentina, huh? Yes, which wow. is fantastic. That's uh, you know, it's a busy life. One of the things that I was uh, at the beginning, I told my it's it's. I won't lie to you, okay? It's tiring. But anyway, uh, one of the things that I told my, my grandfather so at some point, I was like, you know, I was still a kid, and I said, Grandpa, you know, the only thing that I'm a little bit concerned is that you only have once a year to harvest and once a year to take the decisions and once a year with completely different conditions that, you know, can lead to completely different character in the vineyard. And so, you know, the possibility of traveling to Argentina, I spent almost a month in Argentina. Uh, in Two weeks and then two weeks later, um, following up on the on the on the vintage, which is 2017, is spectacular. This year is fantastic. The quality that we're looking at, and uh, you know, by, because of living in Argentina for 10 years, I fell in love with Malbec. I remember in the year 2000, around 2000, when I was in charge of, of the operation there, coming to the U.S., going to some uh, some stores, and oh, I would like to present to you uh, this is a Malbec from Argentina, and people's like. Mal what? <laughs> what is that? Mal, Malbec? Well, it's a French grape variety that was brought to Argentina in the middle of the 19th century. And it adapted so well that most exciting expression of Malbec they're going to find in the world comes from Argentina. No, you have a bit of a struggle with Malbec too because so many people think of Malbec from Argentina and think of that $10 bottle of Malbec from Argentina. And it's sort of a giant candied cherry and then nothing else. Tell me, tell me about this wine and why it's not that. Well, so what we've tried to do since the beginning at Atal Ferrer, what we tried to do was to have a, 
as possible, as much as possible, to enhance, to naturally enhance the expression of our old vineyards that we have in uh, three fincas. So this is, comes from a single property as well. So it goes very much in line with the Pago concept, but in, in Argentina this, that doesn't exist. Sure. But what we have uh, three Pagos, three different vineyards of, uh, of, uh, of Malbec. One is Finca Mirador, which is slightly towards the east of Mendoza. The other one is Bella Vista, where the winery is located, and this is the one that we are tasting. And for me, if you ask me, is the most traditional expression of Malbec, because the Malbec, initially planted in Mendoza, and Malbecs that you can find with over 100 years old, are in the Bella Vista area, are within uh, Vistalba, Luján de Cuyo, uh, Las Compuertas, and, and, and where Bella Vista, where the Finca is. So there's where you can find these very old vines, ungrafted, still ungrafted, wow. um, you know, with flood irrigation, and, and very extremely very well taken care of. And, and then afterwards, we went a little bit further to the south, where some plantations were, were done at the beginning, and still you can find some over 75, 80 years old vineyards, which is called Finca Altamira. So I decided to bring Finca Bella Vista because for me, it has the sort of the complete expression of Malbec, what you may expect from a Malbec, that the violets aroma, the beautiful plums, the raspberry, and on the palate, has, Bella Vista has the most beautiful elegance that I've seen. This is a wine that I've been enjoying for quite a long time. Before we taste this, you're making wine in Spain and in Argentina. Two very different places to make wine and in two very different types of fruit. From our conversation to me, it sounds like your grandfather was a big influence in your overall philosophy of winemaking and it came from him. What is it from your grandfather that you bring to both of your wines? Well, you know, I, I always, from the conversation that we had, I had with my grandfather, there's something I started to build up, the style of wines that I wanted to envision. And um, for me, the wines that I make, and uh, you know, I'm lucky enough to have a, to have a team in Argentina, and, uh, which is Gustavo Rearte, and have a, um, my team in Spain, Diego Rivera and Jose Manuel, that we share the same passion and we share the same philosophy. We try to make a wine that, first of all, is an expression of the terroir, um, you know, all the winemaking techniques have been described. All the, uh, all the uh, equipment that you may find in the world, you know, stainless steel tanks, etc., etc. If you have enough money, that's pretty much what you can acquire. Now, what I work with the team is to have the sensitivity to understand this expression of the terroir and to use the appropriate tools at the right moment. So there's a lot of discussion, there's a lot of interaction between, between all of us, between the entire team, actually, where what we try to do by exchanging those ideas is to, again, be truthful to what we try to do, which is this expression, this particular expression of the terroir. And that came from your grandfather, the idea of being truthful? Yes, yes. Terrific, let's taste this one. Please. So this is the 2013? Spectacular vintage from Finca Bella Vista, 100% Malbec. Now that's a nose that I wasn't expecting from Malbec. It's um, very integrated. You know, Malbec often could be just a fruit forward. Yes. No, no, no. And this is, there's a lot of, there's like earth and a little bit of cedar. Mm-hmm. The fruit is still there, but it's not dominant. It's integrated. So the, from a fruity standpoint, you are in the plummy character. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the black, the, the dark plums. Uh, you are in a sort of a, 
raspberry character as well because you know raspberry i always like to use raspberry as a descriptor when you have a wine that is fruity but at the same time it's sort of a lively herbaceous uh, character and for me for me um raspberry is a fantastic descriptor for for malbec mm -hmm. and then afterwards that earthiness that cedary character that yeah this is beautifully balanced great texture um the tannins are silky and fine. Um, they're, they're there, actually. A lot of times in Malbec, there's very little tannin at all, right? Um, this is stunning wine. Uh, is any of this available in the U.S.? Can you get it here, even? Well, the, the production, the, the, what we make out of this wine is a very limited production as well. So we're talking about around 1,000, 1,500 cases. That's as much as we make of a Finca Bella Vista. Luckily enough, together with Altamira and Mirador, has been always been extremely well recognized. So we're happy to say that you know almost all the production you can find in the U.S., but most of the time it's uh, you have to it, search for it's it. Sold out. You have to you have to search for it. And uh, you know, for me, what what I love about Malbec is the elegance of, of Malbec. Okay, I think that was extremely important to grow as it did within the last uh, 15 years here in the U.S. But then afterwards, Malbec also has additional dimensions that you may explore. And for me, this is one of those cases. And I think of Vista, especially in the palate, where you would be have a sort of would expect a sort of a caramel from a from a Marma, from a Malbec. This is not at all mm -hmm. that. So you have the natural sweetness of the grapes, you have the beautiful texture in the middle palate, but then amazing acidity that kind of tides up everything yeah. together and then the lingering finish the tenants are as smooth as chocolate yeah. powder yeah. but they sustain the fruit for quite a long time manuel lozaro of aranzano thank you so much for your time your wines were from both the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere were delicious uh, next time i get back to spain i definitely uh i'm gonna spin out of uh, san sebastian an hour and uh stop on by and taste some wine the only thing that i can promise you is that you're going to drink fantastic wines and you're going to eat amazing food that's the only thing i can promise we'll be more than welcome thank you <laughs> thanks for your time thank you for john's tasting notes on the wines from this episode go to www.the honestpourpod.com. Make sure you catch every episode by subscribing to The Honest Pour with John Lennart at iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Store. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at The Honest Pour with John Lennart and follow us on Twitter at The Honest Pour. This has been The Honest Pour with John Lennart. Music by Kevin McLeod. 